Hi, you're listening to another episode of the Spotlight Musical Theatre Podcast for Young Performers with me, Simon Wright. In each episode, I invite a special guest from the world of musical theatre, dance and entertainment to talk to me, sharing their wisdom and, I hope, giving you a little inspiration. My guest today is the conductor, musical supervisor and musicologist John Rigby. Born in St Helens, John started playing instruments from a young age and went to study conducting at the University of Huddersfield and Royal Northern College of Music. As a conductor, he is extremely active on the concert platform, working with orchestras like the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, BBC Concert Orchestra and City of London Symphonia. He also conducts the classical spectacular concerts for Raymond Gubby and conducted Andrew Lloyd Webber's 70th birthday concert. In musical theatre, his long list of credits include the UK tour of the producers, Cameron Mackintosh's 25th anniversary tour of Phantom of the Opera, and the Arena World Tour of Jesus Christ Superstar, starring Tim Minchin and Melanie C. Thank you for joining me today, John. Thank you. It's great to be here. You once said you need a passion to have a career in the performing arts. So where did your passion come from, John? Was there any history of music in your family or was there an inspirational moment that made you want to start music? Not professionally. Um, I mean, I came from a working class family in the northwest of England. Um, My dad was a lorry driver and my mum was a housewife. But my dad had a great love of the dance band era and jazz and but my grandfather on my mother's side was an amateur singer and he used to sing in the local Gilbert and Sullivan Society and he had exactly what you just said a real passion for music for singing for classical music for anything to do with the arts really and I would spend Oh, hours with my grandfather and he would play me his old tapes of the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra playing the 1812 Overture and all these kind of things and take me to the theatre to hear orchestras if they were in St Helens and and he I think instilled in me that passion for music that passion for live music that passion for orchestral music and that passion for the theatricality of music as well. So when you say you, you came from a sort of working class background is mm-hmm. was it was it a little bit of a billy billy elliott moment in that people would sort of look at you in a strange way when you told them that you <laughs> wanted to do music or <laughs> maybe a little bit i, I remember being at, at, at high school doing what was now gcse music um, at the time it was o level music and i was the only person in my year to actually sit the exam there were there were about six of us in the class but it was it was very much a kind of non-exam based class except for me who would just be kind of dragged off into a little corner covered office and taught four part harmony and two part counterpoint and and all those things so in many respects i had a one to one classical music education and and also i suppose i was a little bit on the outside. I went to a very good ex-grammar school in St. Helens, but it was a very sport-heavy school. So, you know, if you played in the first 15 in rugby, then you were you were looked upon with, with great admiration, not so much yeah. if you were playing 
first flute in the concert band. So, so I was a little <laughs> bit of an outsider, I suppose, at school. But, you know, I loved what I was doing and I had great support and great support from some terrific teachers, some terrific mentors. And also my parents were very supportive for it. So I was very fortunate. Yeah, because sadly, there's not as much music in schools nowadays, is there, um, or support for it? No, I, I think, I mean, certainly my experiences, I think teachers are really trying hard to keep music alive in a curriculum, but it's, it is difficult. And in some ways, never has music been more um, accessible, what we can do now on computers, on our phones, with tools such as GarageBand or Logic or anything like that. It's very easy to make music, I suppose, very quickly. I think the discipline of learning an instrument from scratch, of actually sitting down and learning to play the piano rather than just cut and paste a piano sample from somewhere yeah. um, is, is a different skill. And I think um, it takes a lot of ded- dedication and commitment. So I have a lot of admiration for young people nowadays who, who really want to to take the time and the, the effort to learn a, a skill like a musical instrument. It's certainly not easy. So what instruments did you learn at school i was originally a flute player that was that was my first instrument it was at the time when there was a famous flautist called james galway who was very popular so um so i learned to play the flute and then i played the piano as well i spent a little bit of while playing the bassoon play a little bit of guitar play a little bit of drums um but it, it was really flute and piano that were my main instruments and then when i went off to to college i went to what was then Huddersfield Polytechnic, um, which had an extremely good music department, still does. And I went doing flute and piano, but I got into conducting when I was still in, I went to an extremely good sixth form college, if you like, in Liverpool that specialised in performing arts. And I got into conducting and I wanted to pursue that. So when I went to university or polytechnic as it was when I went I persuaded them to let me do conducting as my major instrument so by the time I actually left I was doing conducting as my major area of study and piano was my secondary area of study and unfortunately the flute went it's it's still under my bed somewhere I get it out I get it out very occasionally just to annoy my family and see if my lips still work which of course they don't so um so yeah the flute is is sadly under the bed and has been for many years and I think you did the the amateur dramatic circuit when you were studying didn't you was was that as a as MD or as a performer um, no as as MD for many many years actually um when I was a university and when I left, I went to do postgraduate conducting at the Royal Northern College of Music. But I was still living in Huddersfield and it had a very active amateur operatic scene and I got very involved. And I think for about five years, I was literally running from one society to another um, with a baton in my hand. You know, I think I did about 30 shows in five years with different societies. And then I got involved with with some stage schools around there. And it was a fantastic place to actually learn your craft. I mean, I think many people try and learn their craft in the profession. And actually, I wouldn't change those five years of of doing the amateur operatic circuit for, for anything. It taught me the repertoire. It taught me how to deal with people. It taught me how to put things on with very 
limited amount of rehearsal time for the orchestra. Um, I think the skills that I learned in those five years, combined with a good classical education, especially in conducting, um, is what made me the musician I am today. And I, I was very fortunate in, in having some great mentors and people to help me through and forgive my mistakes and, and give me the space to, to make mistakes and grow and try things out. And um, yeah, it was, it was a wonderful experience. Some people do look down on the sort of the amateur dramatic societies, don't they? Uh, uh, and say, well, you know, I'm a professional or I want to be a professional, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to get involved or I, perhaps I feel it's a little bit beneath me or whatever you want to call it. But from what you've said, it's actually a really good training ground. And, and, and as you said, a chance to try different ideas and, and make mistakes and learn your craft. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, I'm full of admiration for, for people who, who take part in these societies, whether it's on stage, behind the stage, as a musical director, as a director, it takes so much dedication, especially when, you know, what you're doing during the day maybe is a million miles away from being on stage in the evening. Um, but it is a great place to to hone your craft and, and to develop skills that really they don't teach you at college. You know, I mean, if you have to work with somebody who isn't maybe a trained musician and you have to coach them through a performance or to to build confidence to to give them the tools they need to actually do the the role on stage um and then help them through on a nightly basis you know that's that's a skill that can only be yeah learned on the job if you like and and like i say just that thing of being aware of time constraints and financial constraints and still striving to do a good performance. You you learn to be resourceful, you learn to you learn your people skills, you learn how to get people to go the extra mile sometimes. It's it's an invaluable training ground and I, I wouldn't swap it for the world. And I guess also learning how to work with children. What did you learn from the world of the amateur scene that you've kind of used in your professional career around working with kids or, or anybody else? Well, in one sense, it was it was children that got me into the professional industry. I, I think I said a moment ago that I, as well as doing the amateur scene, I was also working with a number of stage schools at the time. And it was one of those stage schools that auditioned to be in a touring production of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat back in 1995. And it, it was starring, well, Philip Schofield was just about to come back and go on to the tour. I think it, it was Alec Jones when I first went into it. And it was his first job out of college. Um, and I went up to the musical director and said, uh, you don't know me. I'm a classically trained conductor and work in amateur theatre. And I'd really like to do what you're doing. And he was fantastic. Uh, it was a fantastic musical director called Robert Purvis. And Robert took me under his wing and showed me how to do vocal warmers with the company, got me playing for rehearsals, and, and really helped me bridge that gap between what I was doing in the amateur world and putting that to professional environments. Uh, you know, in one sense, I kind of lament the fact that there's very little at the moment in our industry in the way of apprenticeship. 
Yeah. And I felt as though I had a great apprenticeship with initially Robert, and then there were some other wonderful musical directors, Simon Lee, Phil Edwards, Kay Young, who also took me under their wing and, and really showed me the job and forgave the mistakes I made early on in my career. From what you said, that there are, there are limited opportunities now to do apprenticeships in the way you did. What would be your advice for young conductors and and people who want to make being an MD their career, what would your advice be to them about how, how to sort of get started and move from amateur to professional? Do whatever you can. Just any opportunity you get, no matter how big or how small, to to exercise your craft, to, to conduct, to, um, to make music with people, to work with people, don't always be striving for the West End job. That will come. Just take care of the job that's in front of you. Do whatever job comes along. Do as much as you can do and do a good job of it because you're only going to learn how to get better if you say your standards high. And I don't just mean musical standards. I mean in how you work with people, how you talk to people. Those, those skills are ultimately the skills yeah. that will drive you forward. So just... Any opportunity you get, whether that's to conduct two people sat at a piano or a symphony orchestra of 100 people, do whatever you can do. And, and also learn your skill. If you want to conduct, learn how to conduct. Take lessons, look at the great conductors, look at some of the great classical conductors. Don't just limit your field to the world of musical theatre. I'm very fortunate in the I do a lot of conducting with orchestras and the skills that I use there that I then take into a rehearsal room for Joseph and the skills that I use in a rehearsal room for Joseph that then I can employ when I'm working with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. It's it's a transferable skill set, you know, working with people, making music, just know your craft, take time to hone down your craft and take every opportunity you get to to learn it and exercise it and then yeah. invite people to come and see what you're doing drop drop a line to people like myself and say hey i'm doing this come and see it and don't be offended if we can't and you know just keep inviting again it's learning the the people skills of being able to contact somebody invite them reach out but not make yourself a pain by emailing them three times a week for six months. Well, you might get a few uh, contact requests now, John, just to warn you. The role of the conductor, I know you once said, because I've done a little bit of research on, on your previous quote, um, rather tongue-in-cheek that as a conductor, you just have to wave your arms around until the music stops, turn round and bow. Now, I know... <laughs> you know, the reason, the reason I say that, Simon, is because when I first conducted Les Mis, Oh, it must have been around about 2000 when I first conducted Les Mis. Um, that's what the orchestra wrote and left it on a note on my stand. So I went when I went out to conduct my first performance of Les Miserables at the Palace Theatre, there was a note on my music stand that just said, John, wave arms till music stops, turn around and bow. Brilliant. But obviously there is a bit more to it than that. So just tell us what a conductor does. And actually, what's the difference between a conductor, a musical director, and a musical supervisor? Often in musical theatre nowadays, 
a musical director and a conductor are the same thing. Um, and actually being a conductor is, is that skill set. That, that is the role we do. It's like being a pianist. It's like being a flautist. It's, it's your skill set for playing that instrument. Um, the difference between a musical supervisor and a musical director very loosely um, is often a musical director is the person who will be in the pit performing the show on a nightly basis and working with the company on a day-to-day basis. A musical supervisor is usually more connected with the the genesis of the show, if you like, putting a show together, appointing a musical director, working with the composer, the sound department, the director, um, the casting director, in actually bringing all the elements of the show together and then seeing it through to the opening night, often not in a position of conducting it, but often in a position of standing at the back with the rest of the creative team and being the musical voice of the creative team. And then from opening night onwards, it's often a kind of maintenance role where you would maybe call in to visit the production every few weeks or months just to make sure that, you know, in one sense, standards are being maintained, but in another sense, to offer support to the musical director and maybe be able to say, yeah. oh, this isn't working quite as well as it, it was. Or maybe um, this is something that needs a little bit of attention. You know, it, it's been part of a team. It's, it's In some ways, it's been a pair of, an external pair of ears for the musical director to be able to be halfway back in the stalls to say, from an audience perspective, this is how it's sounding out there. So it's it's like being another another arm of the music department, if you like. I see. So if we take a, a show like School of Rock, for example, mm-hmm. um, where I think you're your musical supervisor for that, aren't you? And, and I think there's a tour next year, hopefully, <laughs> um, assuming that the theatre gets back to life again. Um, could you just talk us through the, the stages, the, the, the main stages from conception through to sort of opening night? Um, and I think the, the, the listeners especially will be interested in obviously casting and auditions and stuff like that. Sure. And I know School of Rock is, is, has a particular challenge in that the, the children have to be able to play the instruments as well. I mean, do, do you teach them those instruments? Do they come knowing enough that they can do enough to kind of get through the audition and then you teach them rest? Well, when we did the London production of School of Rock, it had already played on Broadway. So we had a good indication of what kind of musician we were looking for what kind of performer young performer especially we were looking for um but fundamentally we we had no idea whether we would find those people so the first few rounds of doing open calls of just asking people to turn up with an instrument and sing for us play for us do whatever their skill set was you know we had a rock band set up in an audition room i think we were in north london somewhere and young people would come along and play some guitar and it was interesting because often you would get people who were great guitarists but maybe hadn't had the experience singing or certainly acting yeah because of course with something like school of rock just being able to be a a fantastic guitarist isn't enough you need to be able to be a musical theater performer as well 
So it, it was a tremendous time of just listening to these incredibly talented young musicians turning up and playing Guns N' Roses on the guitar or being able to do incredible grooves behind the drums. And often, especially for the, the role of Katie in the show, who plays the bass. Yeah. Certainly at the time, there were very few young girls who played the bass, but often you would find somebody who turned up and maybe played the cello or even played the violin and and had a sense of music, had a sense of timing and a skill set. So we could actually say, we could teach you the bass part for the show in the next six months. And also with some of the, maybe some of the guitarists who weren't strong singers, we had a vocal coach on board and we would say, your guitar is fantastic. We're going to take you into the show. But as part of that, we're also going to give you singing lessons yeah. for six months. And, and you know, occasionally you will have young performers who would come along and they were just wonderful across the board. But often there was an area that we would all agree as a creative team that maybe this is the weaker area. So we would, we would try and offer support in those areas. Right. So there'd be like a school, a rock school. <laughs> we did. We had a rock school. We oh, had okay. For the length of the of the show in London, there was a rock school. And because we would often have performers, young young performers who would come along and would go, you're not quite ready for the show yet. But if we can work with you over the next six months, say, there's a good chance you will be. And there are a lot of people who would come into rock school and would spend six months with us on a Saturday morning. And then we would get them to the standard needed to be in the show. That's incredible. And um, I presume you had like two or three casts going at any one time because you have to have at least two sets of we children. Did. It, was a rota- it was a rotation of three, three sets of children, three casts. We always had team electric, team acoustic and team bass. So there were, there were always two casts in the building at any one time, and there were always three teams in rotation. You've also worked with Miss Saigon and Les Miserables, haven't you? Um, I was musical supervisor for the Korean production of Les Miserables. I've, I've actually conducted it as musical director twice, both at the Queen's and at the Palace Theatre back in the day. Um, but as musical supervisor... I supervised the Korean production and I was also musical supervisor for Miss Saigon London when it came into the Prince Edward. So I've done two of Claude Michel Schoenberg's show as musical supervisor. And auditioning for those shows, obviously there are some very strong character parts in in Les Miserables. Um, Mm -hmm. When you're auditioning a singer or performer for, for, for the individual roles, how do you approach that? Because is it the sound or is it the, the characterization or both? What makes somebody stand out for a part of Jean Valjean or Javert or, or Epidine or whoever it is? That's a really tough question. <laughs> I think, I think certainly, you know, I mean, I've often worked, as you know, with Lawrence Connor as a director yeah. um, on a new number of productions and i think often you approach it as a team of of what somebody brings that's that's distinctive to the role i mean there's no prescription if you like of 
somebody has to have this particular sound to their voice in order to play Jean Valjean or Eponine. Of course, there are trends, there are certain ways that we look and you know, maybe we don't want it to sound over-operatic. Maybe we don't want it to sound um, too folk-like. Yeah. Maybe we want a certain degree of power in the voice. But, of course, things change, you know, and it's quite fascinating to look back at some of the early recordings, some of the original recordings of those shows, where you had tremendous performances by people like Colm Wilkinson yeah. or... And Simon Bowman in Miss Saigon. But it's interesting now to look at how the vocal styles have maybe changed a little bit because, of course, what we expect in the theatre, in cinema, what our ears are used to, both in terms of orchestration, in terms of acting styles, is very different mm. in 2020 than it was in... 1984 you know we evolve we we change we our tastes change in everything and it's it's unsurprising the theater would be any different is there any example you can give of of a change i mean i know people like colin wilkinson i mean they are icons aren't they really yeah and i mean maybe an interesting one to look at is somebody like michael crawford who Ah, created the role of the phantom you know famously and was sensational in the role but also you look who's played those iconic that iconic role in the last decade and you look at people like John Owen Jones or Ramin Karimlu both of whom have very strong rock backgrounds and and have a very powerful rock sound to their voice whereas maybe Michael Crawford back in the day had a much more legitimate musical theatre voice he'd come out of doing shows like Barnum and so on and and Billy and and so it was a very different approach and it's it's very interesting to compare what we were listening to with such as Michael's voice back in 1986 was it and more recently with the 25th anniversary of Ramin Karimlu at the Royal Albert Hall. They're very, very different vocal approaches, but they're, again, they're very, very different spaces and they're very, very different performances. And it's, you know, it's a very different approach to production as well. So it's it's unsurprising that certain things would change. Does that mean, therefore, you wouldn't recommend... Uh, performers preparing for auditions to listen to recordings and just base their audition performance on recordings like earlier versions of Les Miserables or or Miss Saigon. It's hard, isn't it? Because so many of those recordings are built into our DNA. You know, we know every little twist and turn in the voice. We We were brought up on those recordings. So it's very hard to say, don't listen to recordings. Of course, if you need to listen to a recording, it's the quickest way often of learning a piece of music. But I would say there's the best performances are usually people who have learned or prepared their audition piece from a piece of music mm. and, and found their own way into it, found their own way of telling the story, asking the questions of how the music helps you to convey what emotion you're trying to convey. because. 
ultimately, you know, going back to what you said about what we look for in auditions, and I said it was as part of a team, ultimately what we're looking for is how you bring your individual voice to that role. What do you have to offer? What do you bring to the room that somebody else doesn't bring to the room? I, I often say, you know, I, I speak a lot when I work in various colleges and lecture on auditions or um, or so forth. And I used to lecture for a while in musical theatre at Central School of Speech and Drama. And I always say when people walk into an audition room, we assume by the fact that you have got in the room that you're able to do the job. What we're there to discover is why it should be you that does the job and not the person after you and not the person who comes at two o'clock this afternoon. What, what is it that distinguishes your performance from everybody else? Why, what makes you watchable? What, what's the unique aspect of your performance? And if you're just going to prepare up a performance by reenacting, what somebody like Colin Wilkinson or Michael Crawford or Michael Ball or whoever did 25, 30 years ago, it doesn't really show us what you bring to the table, what makes you an individual Jean Valjean or Phantom or whatever role it is. We're, we're interested in you, not great as they were, the people from 25, 30 years ago. That's really good advice. Any other sort of top tips for the young performers on audition preparation and standing out and getting that first big break? Here's my biggest tip is on the whole, when you walk into an audition, the only thing that you need to be thinking about from what you want from that audition is a recall. Because one of the hardest things is what piece should I sing? What should I do? What, um, what should I bring to the audition room? You know, we put so much pressure on ourselves for what the pieces that we take in. And sometimes people take pieces in that are so difficult or so difficult to get together with, with the pianist. And I think sometimes you forget that actually all you want from that audition is for us as a panel to say, great, we like you enough to send you some material from the show and have you back next week and do some work with you. You know, I mean, I think the thing to remember is that we all are wanting you to do well in an audition. Everybody behind the panel is wanting and expecting that that person who walks into the room are going to be great for the show. And we just want to explore, explore what you can do. So don't make life too difficult for yourself, especially if you are at the beginning of your career and it's an early audition. You're going to be nervous, so pick something that's pretty straightforward for you to sing, something that will absolutely do the job. It doesn't need to do any more than that. It just needs to get you through to the next round. That's great advice, um, John. And are there any examples you can give without mentioning any names, of course, of really bad auditions <laughs> or things which you would never want to see again and and really good it's, ones as well because they're quite interesting sometimes you know those it's, it's always different simon you can expect when somebody says that they're going to sing something that it's going it's like oh no not that again and then they deliver a fantastic 
rendition of it. And and also sometimes people say they're going to sing something and you think, oh, this is going to be great. And then it's not. It's, it's really hard to do hard and fast rules for auditions because for every rule we make, somebody comes along and breaks it and does a great job of breaking it. And that's part of the fun of, of auditions. But I think with auditioning, you learn how to do auditions with experience and quite literally flying time in the room. And if you're at the start of your career, if it's one of your early auditions, don't make don't make it any more difficult for yourself than you have to. It's it's difficult enough as it is. And we will do everything that we can to try and get you through positively with great feedback and encouragement. We want you to do well. Don't make it any harder for yourself than it is. And I think this is a nice moment to have some questions from some of our listeners, starting with Sophie. Hello, I'm Sophie Jerram and I go to Sheffield Performing Arts. My question for John is, if you were able to produce a spin-off musical to the smash hit Les Miserables, what character would you base it off? <laughs> Hi Sophie, that's a great question. Um, and there's... One of the joys of Les Mis as a show is that the characters are so rich and so developed and you want to know more about every character in the piece. So it's it's really hard to pick a favourite. I suppose on balance, maybe Fontaine. She has the most, in some ways, the most interesting backstory, but we know very little about it until the point at which we meet her in the factory. You know, what was her childhood like? What was her background like? Who was the person that she met years ago that resulted in her having a child? Um, I suppose Fontaine would be a great backstory. I think Eponine we kind of can imagine quite a bit of because we know she was brought up by the Tenardiers. We know a little bit about the Tenardiers. Um, Maybe Javert has a great backstory as to what got him to um to the position he was in and, and how that would be narrated in a musical form. Um yeah, maybe those are my two favorites, but I think on balance I'd like to maybe see Fontaine as a prequel to Les Mis. Hi, my name is Ruby and I perform with Sheffield Performing Arts. My question for John is what made you want to join the musical theatre industry or was there any particular show that made you fall in love with it? Yes, Ruby, I suppose there was. I was at college, I was at university years ago, and somebody had the double cast album on vinyl of Phantom of the Opera. And I was aware that musicals had existed and, you know, I'd seen a few musicals and, and so on. And one night in my room, I put this record on and I listened to it all and followed the libretto and listened to all four sides of the double album and I'd never heard anything like it and Phantom of the Opera blew me away it was like nothing else I'd ever heard before and that was really what gave me the impetus to go I'm following a classical career here actually I think there's something to explore in musical theatre And I've been very fortunate in that I've been able to follow both careers simultaneously. But Phantom of the Opera was, I suppose, the first 
musical that really grabbed me in that way. I suppose as well, back in those days, you know, we used to wait for the new cast recordings to come out. And I can remember buying the double album of Starlight Express and then going back and rediscovering things like Cats and Evita and Jesus Christ Superstar. I knew from before um but yeah it was I, I guess on balance it was phantom that really drew me in that this was maybe something that i wanted to do as a profession and then you ended up i did i've it. been i've been very fortunate <laughs> in that i've conducted both productions of phantom i conducted the original hal prince version of phantom at her majesty's theatre in the west end for oh, i think about 18 months and then i also was fortunate to supervise and also conduct on occasion Lawrence Connor's touring production, his reinvention, reimagining of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Phantom of the Opera, which he did to celebrate its 25th anniversary. So I've been very fortunate in being involved in two extremely fine productions of a piece I love. It must be amazing. I'm sure you had a moment at some point during those two runs where you, you stood there thinking... Here I am conducting the show. Absolutely. That really got me going Absolutely. into musical theatre. Absolutely. Who would have thought? It's amazing. You do have those moments when you are conducting pieces and learning pieces. I can remember conducting Miss Saigon in Stuttgart in 1999. I conducted the German production in Stuttgart for a year and actually conducting the helicopter coming down and thinking, oh my God. I'm conducting Miss Saigon as the helicopter flies in. And those are great moments that you, you get and come along occasionally. I remember seeing that helicopter and holding my <laughs> breath, thinking, is it going to make it up and down? Because there were a few sticky moments, I think, when it first I opened that show. Yeah. I'm sure I yeah. remember reading. Hi, my name is Tilly Copley, and I perform with the Sheffield Performing Arts. My question for John is, which production has given you the most satisfaction and why? Thank you. Oh, that's a really difficult one because productions and pieces mean different things at different times because sometimes it's because of a sentimental attachment that you have. For example, I really loved revisiting Joseph this year at the Palladium because it was the first show that I ever conducted professionally back in 95, 96. Um, so it's really tremendous to be part of a new production. Um, as we've just spoken about, it was wonderful to be part of Phantom of the Opera. I suppose on balance, the piece that was really quite special for me to do was Chess, which I conducted two years ago at English National Opera. Because first of all, we could do it with the English National Opera orchestra of 50 players a hand-picked rhythm section that were phenomenal and a company of 50 performers on stage as well and it, it is a tremendous piece if anybody doesn't know the musical chess then please go and listen to it and in some ways there's no recording finer than the original album with elaine page and murray head and those kind of people um but to actually do chess at the English National Opera in a fantastic production that Lawrence directed with 
some of my best friends in the company, people like Tim Hauer and like I say, working with Lawrence. And my wife was also the associate director on it and Stephen Meir choreographing. It was just a wonderful group of people to be in a rehearsal room with and conducting some of the most amazing music ever written with these huge professional resources and having Benny and Bjorn from ABBA who wrote the music and Tim Rice wow. who wrote the lyrics there at the opening night. That was a tremendous thing to be a part of. And actually, um, later this year, I'm supposed to be, I say supposed to be because who knows what's happening at the moment, but um, I am supervising the first Russian performance of the piece it's it's premiering after nearly 30 years in moscow Goodness. for the first time with a russian cast and a russian director and um it's going to open imminently as soon as we can get over there in moscow so it's great to kind of be part of that piece it's a very special piece that's fantastic and you know i remember doing chess many years ago when i was still performing badly um thinking this is absolutely an amazing musical that the, the, the music itself is just beautifully written certainly in my opinion anyway and it's quite classical the score isn't it which is maybe one of the reasons you you loved it so much absolutely and the original recording was recorded by the london symphony orchestra and the rhythm section from the abba band so you know it, it was quite a coming together of worlds you know you, you mentioned Joseph, um, which I had the pleasure of seeing last year, and and the reaction to the show from the critics and the audience was absolutely was. incredible, wasn't it? And it was due to go back into the Palladium this year, and who knows whether it will. But what makes a great show like that great? What what are the ingredients you need? Because it's obviously it's been done many times before with different leads and different you know interpretations of it but what made that production so spectacularly wonderful and and you could see the audience absolutely lapping it up and you know the critics loved it i think there's something incredibly heartwarming about joseph i think for many of us we all have a joseph story um if you spend any amount of time in or close to the world of musical theater or even at school We've all probably sang something from Joseph. We've all probably been in a school yeah. production, um, watched our kids in productions of it. It's it's one of those pieces that runs through our DNA. And, and also it's such a joyful piece. It's such a joyful piece full of hope and triumph over adversity and following your dreams and never giving up on things. And in one respect, I think it's the ultimate feel-good show. And I think that production really celebrated that. It was it was a mixture of nostalgia and a retelling for a modern age of a great feel-good show. And to have somebody like Jason Donovan come back and be part of it and embrace it with such love and positivity was glorious. And, you know, Sheridan redefining the role of the narrator was, was terrific. Yeah. It was great to be a part of. And the, the children were wonderful in it as well. And, and again, it drew on your strengths, didn't it, as as a supervisor and MD to to bring the best out of those kids. 
as did the director Lawrence, you know, in the, in the direction. And it was a great team in the room. I had a fantastic assistant called Ben Van Tienen, who was wonderful with the, with the kids and the young actors. And, you know, these shows are put together by teams of people. And as with any team, you're as strong as your weakest link. And this was a, a team that had no weak links. There was some great people to be in a room with, and we all had tremendous fun together. And I think that came across in the joy of the production. So, John, I hear that you have a really interesting challenge for our listeners. I hope so. And I think it's quite a simple one, Simon, because anybody can do it. Basically, what I'd like to offer is when all this lockdown finishes, I spend a lot of my time going around the country, conducting orchestras, conducting bands, conducting concerts, everything ranging from classical spectacular at the Royal Albert Hall to now that's what I call the 80s live to orchestral concerts and James Bond concerts, all kinds. So I'd like to invite one person and a guest, so two tickets, to come as my guests to one of the concerts that I'm conducting and come backstage afterwards and meet me, meet the soloists, have a chat, and we can try and show you a little bit of what goes on behind the scenes of one of these big orchestral or pop concerts. But I think I want to make this challenge open to everybody and make it very simple. You just need to drop us a line and let us know why you think it should be you. And it can be any reason. It could be because you've always wanted to be a conductor. It could be because you just fancy coming along. It could be because of things that are going on in your life that you feel as though it might be good to come. Any reason, any reason, and we will pick somebody to come along and have a concert experience. Thanks, John. That's really lovely. And details of how to contact us with your with your message are in the podcast notes, along with all the other information about the about the challenge. Before we say goodbye, John, and thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and and thoughts on this podcast. I know the young listeners and, and everybody listening to this would have got a tremendous amount out of out of listening to you. Do you have any final thoughts now, especially in this very difficult time we're all in, um, for our young listeners and, and other performers who are thinking, well, this is a very difficult time. What's the world and what's my future going to look like after lockdown with all the theatres closed at the moment? I think it's really hard to to give any definite answers at the moment. But all we can do is seize what we can seize every day. And in some ways, there is no live theatre at the moment happening, and we don't know for how much longer. But there's also never been more theatre and material available online. And one of the wonderful things I think that's that's emerging is being able to see things from the National Theatre things that Andrew Lloyd Webber's putting on for free streaming. I subscribe to the Berlin Philharmonic website that are free at the moment. There's free opera streams from the Met. Whatever it is that you love, there's never been more 
content available and it's a great time of just being able to look through youtube listen to recordings and fall in love with musical theatre the same way that I did when I listened to Phantom of the Opera all those years ago. Just throw yourself into the music, into watching performers that you admire, performers that you've never heard of, conductors that you may love, music that you've never listened to. What a great time to, to take a chance and listen to something new. And when this passes, you'll be all the richer as an artist because of it. Mm-hmm.